Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley in Westminster, where we were for Sue Gray Day. The report came out while we were on air. It was all very exciting. We rang the bell a lot and tried to uh, pick through all of the new detail and colour that Sue Gray had to offer. I think it was quite... I mean, there's lots of interesting stuff in there. The vomit, the wine on the walls, uh, the people leaving at two in the morning, the fight, all that was quite interesting. For me, I think the standout bit was was more the fact that they knew that what they were doing was wrong. We were told not only there were no parties, but no rules were broken. And there's lots of email chains and WhatsApp messages which point to the fact that, you know, they knew they shouldn't have been doing it. So they shouldn't have been walking around with bottles of wine. Uh, they uh, they shouldn't have been caught on camera doing it. So that's probably the big takeaway on it. Has it made any difference? Well, Boris Johnson uh, later on gave a statement in which he said he was humble and apologised and took responsibility. It's not clear exactly what that means in practice. Keir Starmer called him to resign. Uh, of course, he hasn't. Anyway, coming up, we will unpack Sue Gray uh, in full with Lucy Fisher and Patrick Maguire. Uh, but first, we kick off with our columnist panel. And today, we had a special trio uh, joining me on College Green, just across the road for the House of Parliament. But Alice Thompson and Quentin Letts, the Times sketchwriter, and down the line from the studio was Robert Crampton. Sue Gray Day, how big a deal is today? I think it's fairly big. Uh, Frank Johnson, uh, former late Times sketchwriter, always said that the aim for any journalist in politics should be maximum chaos. And I think we're getting quite a long way along there. But uh, <laughs> it perhaps doesn't feel quite as big as last time around because everybody now knows about the parties. But these photographs are new, so that's going to provide some news value. We're hearing there are nine photographs. So that, that, that's go. a good good three or four that, spreads that, of the papers. That's pages two and three, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but uh, does it, um, is it, is it uh, problematic for Boris Johnson? Undoubtedly, I think. Uh, it would, it's causing problems on two fronts for him. One is that you know, there are these by-elections coming up and the, the photographs and all that. But also the problem about whether or not he's told the truth to Parliament. And those are the two fronts that he's, uh, he's vulnerable on. Alice, what do you make of it? You, is it I mean, it, it, it's been such a long time if we must wait for Sue Gray. Now that she's finally here, if you like, um, is it quite the moment we were expecting? Well, I think the photograph that impresses me most is the Dom Cummings one today, because two years ago today he was sitting, wasn't he, in the garden. In fact, not and unlike this, with a very yeah. similar table. But uh, a bit nicer weather. slightly and better weather. But it was exactly actually, two years ago today that Dominic Cummings was doing his apology. And we've sort of forgotten just what a bizarre time that was. And then you look at the party and you look at the photographs and you think, you know, can it get any more extraordinary? Mm. And it's because it's been a drip-drip effect that we now... Well, a bit like the weather, but you, you now... <laughs> you basically... You're inured to it, aren't you? You don't isn't doesn't have the same sort of impact as it would have had then. I mean, it is extraordinary, really, though. And, and Robert, the interesting thing about when we say two years ago, uh, but Dominic Cummings, I mean, almost all of the parties happened after that moment, after they'd been got dangerously close to losing a very senior person for breaking the rules, which makes it all the more extraordinary that they were, you know, wine wine o'clock Fridays was, uh, <laughs> which just seems to be, yeah, di- you know, it was in the diary. I mean, the extraordinary thing, I was thinking the extraordinary thing is maybe Johnson actually is telling the truth, but what does that say about, if he thought that was a work event, what does that say about the working culture at Downing Street? Uh, that you see, you go into a room and everybody's drinking and there's half-empty bottles of gin and people are sitting on each other's laps and he thinks, oh yeah, this is a work event. Sounds like newspapers. Yeah. <laughs> In the good old days. I wish, they I wish, they I wish. I wish. But it's not, the problem, the Quentin, it's not like that anymore. Like you anymore. Yeah. You're not, you haven't been into the office for a long time, mate. It's not yeah. like that anymore. <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> 
four years. But that's a good that's a good point, actually, Alice. Is that the, the um, uh, times have moved on in almost every other workplace, and the fact mm. that this was seen is okay. Actually, regardless of the rules on the pandemic, the fact that there was this party apparent party culture. Well, just at any time, even when you don't have a pandemic, it just mm. seems slightly bizarre that you know, actually in Downing Street, that they were all cracking open the bottles at four o'clock in the afternoon. And okay, it's Friday, but I mean. You'd think they'd have some more work to do. And they yeah. were always talking about how overwhelmed and exhausted and shattered they all were. And Boris had been ill. And, you know, they that they would literally, they were living on the sort of edge. Well, obviously, you know, if you can clock off at four o'clock and actually you're more worried about your, you know, bottle of wine than, you know, having a good time. Which they were. They wanted to have a good time as much as anything is what you feel. Ah, uh, the neo-puritanism. <laughs> <laughs> What do you make of the, what, what do you expect? You'll be in the uh, press gallery later on. For, I will. Uh, for PMQ's I'll next statement. Yeah. Um, uh, the last time Boris Johnson gave a big statement on the, what had been going on in them, it was pretty brutal in terms of you had sort of it was when Andrew Mitchell said he should go, and you had 2019 Tory MP said he should go. Yeah, um, at the time I get I get confused. There have been so many of these. The, there was the one where Catherine Fletcher stood up, thought she was being helpful, and the best she could manage was she'd spoke to her constituents in an ice cream parlour, and they said the prime minister was a wally, and that was about as supportive <laughs> as it all got. Um, what do you expect from uh, Tory? What do you sense as being the mood amongst Tory MPs? It's hard to say with the Conservative MPs. Um, from parts of the House, there will be uh, a sort of tsunami of fake indignation. Um, <laughs> and it will be grotesque in that sense. And throughout this, there's been a lot of false anger, I think. There's been some genuine anger, too. But in, in the House of Commons, a lot of it fake and a lot of it whipped up for political purposes. Uh, so we'll have a fair amount of that. But I suspect that the greater danger to... Um, to Boris Johnson will come at the 1922 committee meeting. Which is tonight. And that's the one that last time uh, he was considered by, certainly by Steve, uh, the High Wickham man. Baker. Uh, Baker. To have been too um, gung-ho and too triumphalist. And that's what pushed Steve Baker over the edge last time. So this time, the 1922 committee, um, the Prime Minister is going to have to find a more considered and statesmanlike tone. Well, we'll see if he can manage that, pull that <laughs> off. Because you know, as uh, David Cameron and Theresa May will tell you, if you get on the wrong side of Steve Baker, it tends not to not to end. Uh, it tends not to end terribly well. For yeah, but that, you know, because he's representing part of the party, yeah. isn't he? Uh, but I, I, I don't know how how his constituents are. his constituents may not be feeling. It doesn't quite cross into the old Brexit, uh, non-Brexit yeah. um, breakdown. This and it's it's a slightly more. Uh, nuanced. Well, when uh, you've got down. Steve Baker and David Davis on on the side uh, of saying it should go. Yeah, David Davis. I wouldn't draw too many conclusions from him. <laughs> 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 He's a slightly more predictable beast. <laughs> well, I, don't know, I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you mean. Uh, what about if uh, what about um, if Boris Johnson does go? What should he do next, Alice? You've been looking at MPs and what they get up to when they step back from uh, uh, ch- try to climb the greasy pole in your column well, today. Mine was only that every MP I've seen who's left seems to be happier than the ones who are there. <laughs> <laughs> but the ones that are really happy are people like Gavin Williamson, who really was probably the worst education secretary I think we've ever had, um, and was despised and loathed by a whole generation of chil- children for having messed Surely up their Williams exams. Williamson's pretty bad. Oh, no, I think he was worse. And he, But basically, he's now become this sort of hero in Somaliland, and he is now fated, and they have these cappuccinos with his face on, and lots of little children are now called Gavin after him. And he seems much happier. Than Explain that. the clarification. Why that is the case? <laughs> well, he stood up in the House of Commons and he actually talked about why they should have independence and why this plucky little country was doing so well. And also, they've they've had you know that they've, they've, they've got very little money and he's been very helpful. And they had a terrible fire in their marketplace and he has helped to raise money for that. He's done incredibly well there. I mean, much better than he's ever done here. 
but he does look happier for having been you know, recognised for having done some good finally. I think they're just happy. Um, to, what do you? Uh, what, aren't they just happy to get on, out? I mean, it's, well, it's true. The same was true of Anne Widdicombe and Ed Balls, and they didn't do anything useful. They just went on strictly, didn't they? And <laughs> and, and, they are, and they're immediately more popular for not being MPs. But I think Alice has got a good point. I mean, the big example is John Profumo, isn't it? Who spent who spent his uh, entire life kind of atoning for what was probably not something that wasn't as bad as he thought it was by working in uh, in the East End, didn't he? Amongst uh, poor people and. I guess he was happy for doing that. I suppose they're just happy to be out there. There is, there, there is a serial neuralgia at Westminster, and I suspect it's possibly been this way for some time, but it seems to be getting worse, accentuated by, um, by Times Radio and also by <laughs> social media, I suspect. And one of the rather pleasing ironies about this is that the photographs in the um, Sue Gray report will largely come from the Prime Minister's personal <laughs> photographer. <laughs> and this shows that they're, they're, you, know, you can be unstuck by vanity. Yeah. This is something that goes back. Tony Blair had his own photographer, and then David yeah. Cameron had his own photographer. And um, you know, if they didn't have those photographers, they'd be in far less trouble. Well, they didn't, I mean, it's okay, maybe it's okay to have people taking a photo, but not when you feel breaking the law. Well, I mean, it's a very <laughs> bad idea, I find. Nobody wants to go out taking photos of us. On a, but on sort a of it's vanity CCTV. Yeah. It's going to make a great coffee book, isn't it, later? All those parties put I was together. thinking that nine isn't mm. quite enough for a coffee book. No, we've got coffee more, don't book. you reckon? Yeah. I think there could be a whole, you know, you could have a hundred by the end of this. Or a sort of pop-up book. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Comes with a free bottle of wine. Uh, that would definitely make sense. Uh, let's move away from Sue Gray for a moment, because we're still, as we understand it, it's 37 pages long. There are nine photos. That is all the information we've got uh, thus far. Um, let's talk about the, the, the situation in America, Alice. And uh, now 19 children, two adults, have died in a shooting, uh, another shooting at a primary school in South Texas. It's just baffling to Brits, isn't it? The well, I covered Dunblane. It's one of the first oh, things course, I covered. Yeah. And I do really remember going up there and the level of the bullets all around the school hall were at sort of child height, at waist height. And and it was extraordinary. I do remember the backlash then. People worried about what you were going to do and whether the gun laws should change or not. And what's extraordinary about America is they can see that the Brits have done it, that they've, in Europe they've done it. They have by far the worst record. And yet, when they're polled, they want more and more liberty to be able to carry guns and do what they want. And, and it is kind of extraordinary. I mean, you... It is one of those baffling situations where you just don't understand how America can go so far in another direction. Quentin, you've worked in America as well. I've lived in America as well. as well, and I was at university in America for a while, uh, 1980, and um, the proliferation of guns was extraordinary, and uh, they were everywhere. And I was shot at one day in a car park by uh, an overexcited El Salvadorian student who just happened to be loosing off his guns because he felt strongly about the politics in his country, and I was very nearly shot. So uh, it can be very dangerous. Wow. and. Um, Luis Calderon, his name was, and I, I have no idea what's happened to him now, but he was, he was a wild man. But he was able to have guns, and nobody at the college, the, the campus, would stop him. Mm. Uh, there we all were. So it is a completely different world, as Alice says, and it, the, for Europeans to try to get their heads around this, is, it never really works, because it ties in very closely to the ideas of American liberty and um, the, the, the citizens' rights, and uh, it's a very different approach from what we have here. Uh, and Robert, I suppose it's one of the examples of where we think we're very alike America because mm. of the language and enjoying watching Friends. But yeah. actually, this is one of the, the major sort of schisms in the culture. Yeah, it's a massive one. You just you, we, do, we can't get our heads around. I mean, it does happen in other countries. I remember Anders Breivik in Norway, which you know, the very 
peaceful country, and it has happened here, as Alice says, but uh, it, the, there's obviously, to, to most of us, there's an absolutely obvious uh, connection between the availability of guns in America. Over 300 million guns, more than there are people, I think. Uh, and the, the instances of these, of these school shootings in Columbine, Sandy Hook, and now this one. And it's hard to see uh, how, why the, how the Americans don't see it. I mean, I guess a lot do. But the, uh, the NRA is a powerful lobby, and they can uh, they get kibosh any legislation, can't they? I mean, Clint, yeah. Clinton tried, it's and then it was reversed under Bush, I think. Clinton tried to get rid of certain types of automatic weapons, and then Bush reversed it, and it's just bizarre. But every time, and I remember the last time something happened, we, we did a, a big thing on the, on the show on it, Alice, and we sort of had a montage of all the presidents, I think Clinton, Bush... Obama, mm-hmm. uh, Biden, all of them. You know, Obama seemed to spend half his time as president at memorial services. You know, he sang "Amazing Grace" and mm-hmm. all of that. And nothing seems to nothing seems to change. It's amazing that we think the U.S. president is the most powerful person in the world, and he can't stop. No, the, nor can the, the country. It's people the killing people, children, killing and the parents and the teachers talking about it. And the fact that all these schools have to have drills. I mean, that you're putting primary school children through drills when they're having to hide under desks and. They're being told how to act if they're shot at. I mean, I would much prefer to have a culture where you didn't have guns, but you didn't have the drills. It seems extraordinary that, in many ways, you're taking away the liberty of a whole generation of children. It seems the price they're prepared, uh, well, okay. to, prepared to pay for to have the Second Amendment, doesn't it? Bizarre. Yeah, it does seem it does seem bizarre and 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 sort of baffling to to anyone else, um, uh, particularly in, in Britain, where the culture is so different. Uh, the publication of the Sue Gray reports. Uh, it's 37 pages long. It's got nine photos, including pictures of Prime Minister Boris Johnson, Chancellor Rishi Sunak, and Cabinet Secretary Simon Case. But we haven't seen any of them Why yet. Why do you keep hitting that bell? Uh, because every time I mention Sue Gray, oh. I ring the bell. I've been doing mention it for, who? <laughs> I've been doing it for five months. I see Sue Gray. To the irritation of uh, almost everyone. <laughs> People keep asking me, will the bell be retired? I suspect not, uh, is the answer. Um, uh, so that's Quetzalette's Quetzalette's Times sketch artist here with me in the gazebo, along with uh, Times columnist Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton is in the warm and dry of the mm. studio. Um, Nicola Sturgeon become, uh, overtakes Alex Salmon to become the longest-serving First Minister of Scotland. Well, there you go. That's pure quality. <laughs> he must be so annoyed, though, because she was the sort of protégé that he brought on and then she's overtaken it's him. It's extraordinary, their mm. relationship, the way it's gone from yeah. you know, being the protégé to you know, handing over... And, then and the owning it. To, to then owning it and... Almost destroying him, so it's like, like Monsieur Hollande and uh, and, and Macron, mm. but slightly different characters. Slightly less grubby. <laughs> <laughs> Robert, are you a fan of Nicola Sturgeon? I am quite a fan of Nicola Sturgeon, actually. Yeah, uh, I don't know entirely why, because I'm not sure I agree with most of her politics. But uh, I just there's just something about her that I quite admire. She's a little bit of a maybe there's something uh, there's something sort of very Scottish and disciplinarian about her. And I don't know, maybe what it says more about me than it does about her. <laughs> You're getting into deep water scrap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think there is something interesting about English voters, or voters in England, who are impressed by her and therefore slightly intimidated. You know, that actually we will almost certainly see at the next election Nicola Sturgeon in Keir Starmer's pocket, won't we? If in those posters, assuming that it is still... Well, that's slowly. what they're planning to do, aren't they? They want to say, you know, vote Labour and you get the SNP. But uh, actually, I don't think that's going to be so bad this time because, funnily, she was quite good over COVID. She definitely had, 
you know, she had her views on COVID, didn't she? She has a book club that a lot of people seem to follow and like. She was yeah, a horror on COVID. She was whipping up the frenzy all the time. Well, that's what I mean, but there's a whole constituency who's going to like that, aren't they? No, but the they sort felt of... She was like the economic damage it's done. No, but the anti-Boris Johnson, mm. why isn't he doing more brigades? She why isn't he doing tapped, more? Tapped he did too much. <laughs> But at the time, there was uh, there was that. Um, yeah, well, but I mean, she, ba- she, she basically did everything that Boris Johnson did a week later with a slightly different logo, uh, but in a way that sort of seemed to be me more reassuring. She's uh, a very efficient piece of work, certainly. Mm. I'm not sure she radiates much warmth uh, or humour, but uh, maybe that's <laughs> not needed. Well, do you, I do wonder if they come the next election, maybe maybe we've had enough warmth and humour mm. uh, from the Prime Minister, people will look for something different. Well, you do miss Ruth Davidson, and actually I always think of her with her, because you know she was the Tory leader in Scotland, and you kind well, of wish she still was. Yeah. Mm. Well, she does, I mean, she's fantastic, but th- that's the problem, she's not there in Scotland anymore, leading the Tories, is she? No, but now, now the Labour Party's doing quite, well, doing sort of relatively better, Robert. Yeah, Scotland. it's, yeah, it's staged a bit of recovery, hasn't it? And it needed, to, and it needs to, because I, I think it's, I think I'm right in saying it's only ever won twice won the majority of English seats. It's always needed Scotland and Wales, uh, so it needs to displace the SNP if it's not going to do a deal with it. It's interesting to see what Nicola does now, Sturgeon, because she can say much more than Keir Starmer can say, probably in some ways, because she isn't worried about you know the, the backlash to that and the fact that she's got anything hanging over her, and we haven't had any photographs yet. Although we did she have said a, something, she didn't, didn't we? wear a mask. Yeah. yeah, she didn't wear her mask. She didn't wear a mask a couple of times. And it was only very briefly, though, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Did you obey the laws? <laughs> I didn't. I was breaking them all the time. And I think most you of the country was. You didn't write them, though. No, but even so, we were all sort of part of the media organisations that were pushing these things down the population's throats. And we're all... Were you at any of these parties, Quentin? Uh, no, a great pity I wasn't. I wish <laughs> I did you have any parties, Quentin? Yes. Yes, we did. During lockdown? Yeah. I'm going to get myself into trouble by saying that. Yeah, yeah. I after church sometimes. Well, I don't mean know what. I couldn't. You know what Sue Gray is going to look into next. Far worse. Going through your your economic damage done by uh, lockdown was far, far worse than any damage done to the dignity of the law by me in Herefordshire having a couple of babies. But the difference between there is a difference between you in in Herefordshire and Boris Johnson. There there is, but it's not that enormous, I don't think. If we're going to be part of a media organisation that's criticising the Prime Minister for breaking the rules, and you know, I think we've got to be more honest about this. And I think a lot of a lot of the population now looks at uh, Boris Johnson and thinks, oh well, well, you know, he's. He's broken the laws, but we we were doing the same ourselves. But sure we weren't. No, but we were, I disagree with that. Actually, we weren't. We were I all. Don't at, we, were all that. That. we were all at mm. home. We were all. Nobody, nobody coming to the office for months. I mean, there were only. I was going into the office all the time. The, the, the office but was empty. Isn't there we also? There is also a, a, a practical question, actually, isn't it? If if they were lording it up, as they seem to be, wine o'clock Fridays at four o'clock and all of that, actually. They weren't experiencing lockdown in the way that lots of other people were. But maybe had they been, they might not have been quite so enthusiastic about continuing it. Yeah, that's true. Excellent but point. you know, I think we just we should have been much more honest about being less. In, we, we should have been attacking lockdown much more and saying this thing is ruinous. Yeah, oh, but it's not, oh, in it's many not. respects, economically and socially. The people socially. who then did abide by the rules are going to feel furious. Yeah, the they? reason, I think that's the reason what's so it had such a ruinous impact on the economy was because so many people did mm. abide by it. But as, as you say, the problem is that you know, if Downing Street weren't abiding by it, they didn't realise quite how insane and ridiculous half the rules were because yeah. they assumed that everyone was going to break seen up. Yeah, but they, they'd seen yeah, they saw Quentin Qu- Quentin's involved. Facebook photos <laughs> leading a convoy. I don't know how to do Facebook, Facebook very well. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the etchings of Quentin's parties were being circulated in the coffee shops of London. It's just a bad look, um, isn't it? When you, the you followed <laughs> rule of six the whole time, did you, Charlie? Yes, we really did. 
week. We oh, really did. The only time you've ever been obedient didn't in your life. See, no, I'm a very obedient. I'm a very, I'm a big fat square. But yeah, we were pretty good. I didn't see say. family for a long time. I'm amazed. I mean, you were you allowed to go to church because no one was allowed to go to church much, were they? I mean, I'm not a church girl. Yeah, there were times when you could go to church, and then uh, you know you were told you couldn't have a sherry afterwards. Well, and I you didn't feel guilty. You didn't have to go to confession. So I went to a party. You don't feel. I'm an Anglican. We don't really do confession. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, if Herefordshire police are listening, <laughs> I think they've probably all learnt the lesson of not reopening retrospective I investigations. Well. I think. I think. I think you're probably. Well, right. unless Sadiq Khan gets onto them. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Crampton, Quentin Letts and Alice Thompson there. And of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's Sue Gray Unpacked. You're listening to the Red Box podcast now. It's time for this. Wait for the, uh, for the inquiry to be complete. Well, I will wait for the but we still got to wait for yeah. the Sue Gray report. So I'm really keen that we wait for the Sue Gray report to come out. We wait for the Sue Gray. We need to get the, the full picture, which I'm sure Sue Gray is working as rapidly as she can to get that out there. Sue Gray, a very experienced civil servant. You know Sue Gray. Sue Gray, the Sue Gray report. Sue Gray. Sue Gray. Sue Gray. Sue Gray. And all I ask is that Sue Gray be allowed to complete her inquiry. 37 pages, nine I, photos. Where is it? comment or give any running commentary on uh, her report until we get it. I'm still joined by uh, Times Red Box editor Patrick McGuire, Times Radio chief political commentator Lucy Fisher. Lucy, what do we know? We've just got a, a, a mad all press gallery message saying that the report has dropped. We have the Sue Gray report has arrived. As we were told, it was 37 pages long and uh, contained... Uh, what, nine photographs, uh, we were told. Uh, it sets out the, the timings of the events that uh, Sue Gray was looking into. Uh, she uh, um, uh, goes on to say uh, that uh, she had um, investigated the... Rep- the, the, the um, we should go, let, tell you what, let's go right the way back. Uh, Patrick McGuire has, in fact, got the photos. There is... Boris Johnson. Describe the photos for us, Patrick McGuire. It is, uh, it is quite the series of tableau. Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak and Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, before a literal smorgasbord in the truest sense of the word, a, a platter of Tesco sandwiches. Boris Johnson holding a can of Estrella aloft, uh, while I think that's a, that's a, uh, a bowl of Bombay mix. Um, and there are similar pictures. The pictures that were leaked to ITB are in this report, predictably. Uh, Rishi Sunak is stood beside the Prime Minister in one of them. Um, they are not, it should be said, particularly debauched scenes, but they are difficult for Number 10 to defend, particularly because they look primarily social. Um, it's the Prime Minister with a beer. Uh, Simon Case is you know, in a state of some reverie, chuckling away. Um, these aren't the lurid pictures we were led to expect, but they're still very difficult for Number 10 to defend. Looks a bit like a picnic more than a late-night boozy party in the Cabinet room, doesn't it? It does, it does. This is the notorious birthday party. and actually, Of course it is. Uh, the cake with which he was ambushed uh, is nowhere to be seen. Well, in many ways, it's it's quite... Um, uh, it echoes what we heard from her in the interim report. I must say I'm particularly appalled to hear about multiple examples of a lack of respect and poor treatment of security and cleaning staff. I think people will be pretty disgusted to hear that, you know, powerful um, officials, special advisors, civil servants, so forth, uh, may not have been treating, you know, people cleaning the building with the respect they deserve. In fact, there's one uh, um, example of an event, I think this is a Christmas event, uh, December 2020, 
Uh, food and wine had been bought in by staff. Staff drank excessively. The event was crowded and noisy. Uh, so that such that some people working elsewhere in Number 10 that evening heard significant levels of noise coming from what they characterised as a party in the press office. A cleaner who attended the room the next morning noticed there was red wine spilled on a wall and a number of boxes of photocopier paper. Uh, Patrick Maguire, your initial reactions? It's pretty, it's pretty damning. I think there's a very telling line in this, and I think in some respects it raises more questions than it answers. This is Sue Gray. It was also, unfortunately, the case that details of some events only became known to me and my team through reporting in the media. This is disappointing. Now, that line in particular is going to convince people who read this, Boris Johnson's critics, the opposition, it is only going to fuel speculation that he has not been entirely straight throughout this process, be it with Parliament, be it with Sue Gray. And as much as Sue Gray concludes in her obligatory defence of the civil service that um, this was not the prevailing culture in government, what she has described is a pretty uh, systematic breaches of the rules. There's a very telling series of WhatsApps that I was most struck by about the infamous cheese and wine evening that shows an invite was revised to call it a meeting. Now that implies there was definite awareness that what they were doing was against the rules and again the Prime Minister's defence that he was unaware or his team were unaware, you know, again stretches credulity a little bit I'd say. There's another outstanding question, again this report raising more questions than it necessarily answers. The infamous gathering in the Downing Street flat at which the Prime Minister's wife um, was said to have attended uh, on the evening of uh, Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane's departure from number 10. Sue Gray said she didn't, wasn't able to investigate it fully because the Met uh, announced their investigation when she had just started um, investigating evidence and she concluded it wasn't proportionate to reopen her own investigation to it. And that, for most people, sounded like, the notorious ABBA party, sounded like the most open and shut case of, uh, of a breach of the rules. So there's plenty for people who want to continue digging here to keep, to keep on digging up. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it, Lucy? We are getting more detail, more colour, if you like, uh, to go around that quite stark list of events previously investigated by the police. Well, that's true, but the bar's pretty high, isn't it, when you learn about drunken revelry in the Downing Street Garden having broken the toddler Wilf's swing, when we heard previously about the suitcase of booze being stopped up from the co-op on the Strand and then brought back to Downing Street, partying ahead of uh, Prince Philip's uh, funeral... I'm not sure there's anything so far I've seen in this report as I'm scanning through it at, at, at lightning speed that really beats that in terms of colour. And I think um, Patrick is right. There's lots in this for people to keep kicking the Prime Minister and the government over. But I suspect people have largely made up their minds. Those who are critical will be more critical. Those who think it's not a big deal will we'll continue to think that. Uh, Sue Gray also uh, reveals that Boris Johnson uh, brought the wine and cheese to that famous gathering in the in the number 10 garden uh, with the photo uh, that emerged uh, with uh, Dominic Cummings too. Uh, there's also reports that he had a meeting with food and alcohol in his office uh, in, uh, oh, in fact in the Downing Street flat on the night of Dominic Cummings' departure. That's been described as a meeting. Uh, there have been reports of cleaners finding red wine up the walls. Uh, a party uh, carrying on in the cabinet office, uh, in the cabinet secretary's office, in Whitehall until the small hours, uh, where someone was sick and there was an altercation between two people, uh, too.
the Sue Gray report, uh, uh, five was it five months uh, in the making, uh, confirming uh, largely got a lot of what we perhaps uh, suspected, feared, had already been reported. Uh, Sue Gray saying many will be dismayed that behaviour of this kind took place on this scale at the heart of government, and what happened fell well short of the standards uh, expected. Patrick McGuire, Times Web Box editor, is here. Patrick, what are you hearing? What I'm most struck by about this report is the number of inst- the number of instances where staff adjust their behaviour, leave by back doors, uh, refer to getting away with it. That's literally a line the Prime Minister's private princi- uh, principal private secretary, Martin Reynolds, committed to text. He said, we got away with the drinks. You know, the full Basil Fawlty. That is an extraordinary thing for a senior number 10 official to commit to text. They ignored warnings. Lee Kane, then the Prime Minister's head of communications, said um, a leaving do in the number 10 garden with 200 people um, looked bad, uh, given the state of restrictions in May 2020. Um, as I said, staff instructed to leave via back doors to avoid um, the camera bulbs of the press after that uh, party in 70 Whitehall. I mean, they knew what they were doing. This is what this report tells us. They knew what they were doing, even if the Prime Minister is pleading ignorance. The people around him knew they were breaking the rules persistently. You do wonder there where um, uh, Boris Johnson famously uh, said uh, in the House of Commons about he'd been repeatedly assured there were no parties and no rules were broken. You do wonder who it was, I mean, quite apart from what you could see with his own eyes, who it was who was doing the assuring, given that, as you point out, uh, that the people involved in these events knew clearly they weren't... Uh, they, they shouldn't have been happening, as you say. That there was in one exchange. This is after the this is the uh, the party in the garden. Uh, um, uh, Martin Reynolds uh, talks about text someone. Better like a complete non-story. Talking about obviously journalists investigating something. A complete non-story, but better than them focusing on our drinks, which we seem to have got away with. They knew of that Martin Reynolds, who is as close an official to the prime minister as you can get, knew exactly the impact. The, this behaviour would have if they were, if, if those events were made public. Lucy Fisher, Times Radio's Chief Political Commentator. Yeah, well, I just um, spotted this message from Lee Kane to Martin Reynolds, the organiser of the notorious Bring Your Own Booze party in the Downing Street Garden, and the sheer cynicism is remarkable. He says, I'm sure it will be fine, and I applaud the gesture, but a 200-odd person invitation for drinks in the garden of number 10 is somewhat of a comms risk in the current environment. To me, it just speaks to this idea. It's not that it breaks the rules that matter. It's that it looks bad or being found out is what uh, what could damage the government. I mean, I suppose that's the, that's the question, um, isn't it, Patrick? The extent to which this reconfirms what we knew, but all does by bringing it all together, the, the text messages, the photos, the websites are going to be filled with it this afternoon, the bulletins will be filled with it tonight, the papers will be filled with it tomorrow. And you do just wonder what reaction there will be from Tory MPs, Tory activists, Tory party members. Yes, exactly. It's the Tory MPs, Boris Johnson's most important constituency. I know, obviously, the public are going to be outraged by much of this. But in terms of Boris Johnson's political survival, in terms of the politics of this situation, it's what Tory MPs think that matters. And also, what does this tell us about the outstanding question? Was Boris Johnson entirely truthful? Did he knowingly mislead Parliament? And I would say, given the cynical, obfuscatory, evasive messages we've seen in here about that expose just how much knowledge number 10 officials and political advisers had of whether they were abiding by the rules or not, I think there's plenty here 
to uh, raise legitimate questions over Boris Johnson's uh, truthfulness. I know we're slightly picking through them at random points this, but uh, let's look at the... Uh, there was a gathering in the Cabinet Office, 70 Whitehall, on the departure of a number 10 official. In a, sort of an email exchange about this happening, the subject being my leaving, it says, Hi, it'd be nice to do the speech bit either tomorrow or Friday with a Zoom option uh, so, that I, so that I can invite a wider audience. Uh, they then go on to say, Martin and Stuart would like to do speeches tomorrow when we have your drinks, which aren't drinks. What time are we planning on the drinks? I think we should aim to do speeches in the Cabinet Room via Zoom at 6.30 when the PM is gone and Dom's evening meeting is finished. Uh, they then go on to say, uh, well, if we're doing it in the Cabinet Room with a gap then to the actual drinks, I think we can more explicitly call it goodbye or leaving speech or something. Uh, and so it goes on and on and on. Uh, it might have to be a different room. Um, there's clearly, uh, again and again and again, this sense of what can we get away with? Um, we know we shouldn't really be doing this. And a deliberate t attempt to confect a paper trail that implies a degree of legitimacy. Look at the event that was changed from cheese and wine evening to uh, meeting with cheese and wine, I think was the precise phrase. Um, that one hasn't convinced Sue Gray, that uh, brilliant bit of, uh, brilliant bit of uh, detective work. <laughs> PMQs unpacked on Times Radio, unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order, I call Matt Chorley and Patrick Maguire. Yes, here we go again then. It's PMQ's Unpacked on a Sue Gray Day. Uh, welcome along if you're listening on Times Radio or if you're watching along on YouTube. If you want to see us, Patrick McGuire and I sitting in the... It's sort of not quite as drizzly as it was uh, outdoors on College Green with the House of Parliament in the background. Uh, just go online to... Uh, you, go to YouTube, uh, go, uh, search for Times Radio and you'll be able to see us uh, as the uh, action gets underway. Patrick McGuire... I mean, we've had several of these this year, uh, big moments for PMQs, but this is still a pretty big moment for Boris Johnson. Uh, I don't think it comes bigger for Boris Johnson this calendar year, actually. The interesting question is whether Keir Starmer chooses to refer explicitly to what we've all just read, or whether, as I suspect, he has six questions on the cost of living and perhaps tries to tie them together at the end with a point about um, you know, this frat house culture in Downing Street blinding it to the real problems affecting working people. I think that would perhaps be a shrewd move. I suppose that's an interesting question because obviously Keir Starmer has this slightly odd thing. We're going to have PMQs for this half hour. Then Boris Johnson will get up just after 12.30 and actually do his statement on, on the report. So Keir Starmer doesn't want to repeat himself. So actually asking some maybe some detailed questions about the cost of living might, might uh, help to slightly wrong foot the Prime Minister. Yes, exactly. And it gives his team time to comb through the report to see the reaction and craft a uh, you know an excori a, a, you know appropriately excoriating uh, response and pointed forensic questions to the prime minister to ask in that crucial statement at 12:30. I think we can dip into the uh, the House of Commons now. Uh, that's Boris Johnson was just uh, just speaking there. Uh, in fact, uh, we'll, we'll go back to the Commons when uh, when Keir Starmer is actually up and on his feet. Uh, if you are watching on YouTube, do get in touch. We can see yes, you can see the wine bottles on the desk. They are all empty. I bought, don't worry about that. Uh, hi from Bangkok says Ian. Hi Matt. It's Terry from Liverpool. From uh, Patricia in Morton Marsh. Hello from North Yorkshire. Uh, hi from Winnie, Windy Sunny Crosby says Dawn. Sounds like the weather's nicer there. Uh, and Andrew's tuning in from Dubai. Uh, let us know what you think of PMQs as uh, as uh, PMQs gets underway. We can now cross the road. We can go live to Keir Starmer for question number one. Of the opposition, Keir Starmer. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. And uh, my thoughts also, and I know the thoughts of the whole House, are with the families of the victims of yesterday's school shooting in Texas. 
19 children have died, some as young as seven, and two adults believed to be teachers. It is an unspeakable tragedy, and our hearts are with the American people. Last weekend marked the anniversary of both the Manchester bombing and the murder of Lee Rigby, and we remember them this year as we do every year. And today is also the anniversary of the killing of George Floyd, a reminder that we must all tackle the racism that is still experienced by so many in our country and beyond. Mr Speaker, the Sue Gray report was published this morning, and I look forward to discussing that during this afternoon's statement with the Prime Minister. For now, I want to focus on the cost of living affecting the whole country. Mr Speaker, since we stood here last week, and I asked the Prime Minister yet again to back Labour's plans for a windfall tax to reduce energy bills, hundreds of millions of pounds have been added to bills of families across the country and hundreds of millions of pounds have landed in the bank accounts of energy companies. It sounds like he's finally seen sense, and the inevitable U-turn may finally have arrived. So when can people across the country expect him to use those oil and gas profits to bring down their bills? Well, Mr Speaker, there's nothing original about a Labour plan to tax uh, business. There's nothing remarkable. They want to tax business uh, the whole time, every day. Uh, Labour wants to put up taxes on business. And what we're doing is we're helping people. He asks when we're going to help people. We're helping people now, uh, Mr Speaker. And uh, we're, we're, we're putting £22 billion into uh, people's pockets already, cutting uh, council tax by £150, cutting uh, fuel duty, cutting national insurance contributions by an average of of £330 for people who pay pay NICS. And, Mr Speaker, how can we afford that? Because we have a strong economy, because we came out of Covid fast, Mr Speaker, which would not have been possible if we'd listened to the party opposite. OK, let's jump in there. It's Matt Chorley with Patrick McGuire bringing you PMQ's Unpacked. Patrick, you got it right. Keir Starmer going for cost of living. Um, not, I mean, not a particularly original question, given that he's asked the same one for several weeks now. No, it tells you a lot about the political priorities of both uh, Labour and the Conservatives at this moment. Keir Starmer obviously keen to be seen as the man... Uh, who deserves credit for the idea of a windfall tax. We know that when the Conservative Party steal Labour's clothes, it isn't always that straightforward. Um, And Boris Johnson sort of caught on the hop there, I thought. It wasn't a particularly convincing answer, particularly as we know from this morning's Times and other lesser newspapers that the government is on the brink of introducing the policy it deems to be uh, intrinsically unconservative, a windfall tax. And I think Boris Johnson's um, sort of you know, wrote response there about Labour wanting to clobber businesses with taxes. Um, One, reflects uh, the point of weakness he sees in the Labour Party, which is uh, the economy. But two, shows you that even though number 10 have made up their minds, number 10 and 11 have made up their minds on a windfall tax, they still don't know when they're going to pull the particular trigger. Uh, because so, so the reports is going to be tomorrow, but you, you think it, maybe it might not be? Well, it all depends on what the news agenda looks like later today and whether they make the judgment that they can uh, gazump the papers with a big announcement on the cost of living or whether it will be sucked into 
uh, a whirlpool of speculation and news and controversy that's, that's, about that's, that's the tension exactly if they, if they they could give it to the papers for tonight so it's in the papers tomorrow or they could do that and it ends up on page 10 because there's nine pages of photos from Downing Street Downing Street parties well I'm sure the Financial Times are splashing it don't they worry they could uh, <laughs> I'm sure the Daily Mail would as well um, uh, lots of you are getting in touch and posting comments on the uh, on the YouTube channel go to uh, YouTube uh, search for Times Radio you can see Patrick and I in all our glory um, uh, some of you saying, why is he ignoring Partygate? Others pointing out, we have got the statement coming at 12.30. Uh, uh, one person on uh, on YouTube says, it reminds me of that boy boyfriend. We've all fallen for him, no shame, but if you don't dump him and decide to keep him for, around for a long time, uh, then it's on you. Is she talking about me or you? I, I don't know if she's talking about me or you or the Prime Minister. It could be any one of us. Uh, right, look, this is uh, Matt Jolly on Times Radio with Patrick McGuire bringing you PMQ's Unpacked. Let's go back to uh, the comments now. This is Keir Starmer, question two. <laughs> 15 tax rises and he yeah. pretends they're a low-tax government. <laughs> it's been, it's been, Mr Speaker, it's been four and a half months since Labour first called for a windfall tax on oil and gas profits. I've raised it week in, week out, and every week he has a new reason for not doing it. The Business Secretary said it's bad. The Justice Secretary called it disastrous. Even this weekend, the Health Secretary and the Northern Ireland Secretary opposed it. He ordered all of his MPs to vote against it last week. And now, surprise, surprise, he's backing it. Prime Minister, I'm told that hindsight is a wonderful thing. (laughs) But, Mr Speaker... Mr Speaker, whilst he dithered and delayed, households across the country suffered when they didn't need to. What? Peter. Mr Bone, a man who always wants to catch my eye is not going the best way to do so. Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, whilst he dithered and delayed, Households across the country suffered when they didn't need to. What is it about the Sue Gray report that first attracted him to a U-turn this week? Ah, the the Mrs Merton question. There is is no surprise about Labour's lust. There's no surprise about Labour's lust to put up taxes. Uh, There's nothing original about his thought. They, they get off on it. They, they absolutely love to confiscate uh, other people's assets. What we prefer to do, Mr Speaker, is make sure, make sure that we have the measures that are in place to drive investment in our country and drive jobs. And it's thanks to the steps that we took, uh, thanks to the fact that we came out of Covid faster than any other European country, which would not have been possible if we'd listened uh, to him, uh, that, we, uh, that we now have unemployment at the lo- listen to this Un- they used to care about this mr speaker unemployment at the lowest level since 1974 uh, put that in your pipe <laughs> put that in your pipe i think i've just had a quick chat it's the first time that get off on it uh, has also made an appearance in the house of Commons chamber that was a proper sort of keir starmer uh, doing mrs merton you know what first was it what first attracted you to the millionaire yeah, magician paul, paul daniels, daniels yeah, yeah. to debbie mcgee Someone's put 50p in the back of Keir Starmer. This is one of the best dispatch box performances ever. Certainly, um, 
joking with a naturalism that usually escapes. I was him. concerned because he did, he was doing the Keir Starmer laugh of just <laughs> in between each. But actually, he's you know they're quite sharp questions. Uh, uh, I mean, he, even actually rehearsing some of them from last week, reading out what various cabinet ministers have said, but with a slightly more pointed edge to them. Yes, exactly. And I think there are there are three key points there. The first is Labour, again, are determined to take the credit for this U-turn. Whether they will or not is another question. I'd say that's probably not the most fruitful of avenues to be exploring. The second is an interesting one. Whether Keir Starmer can land this criticism that the government have dithered and dithered and dithered up to a point where whatever measure they take, a windfall tax or whatever, probably won't even scratch the surface of the financial burdens that a, a normal household is going to have to bear. Um, and the third thing is Boris Johnson's response. It's very telling. And I'll tell you what it reminds me of. Uh, Isaac Levido, David Canzini, Linton Crosby, the campaign they've just run for the Liberals in Australia, which concentrated on Labour's perceived weakness on the economy, um, whacking up taxes, that sort of thing. And we know now it didn't work, particularly in the uh, suburbs. And we should point out, Linton Crosby, uh, David Canzini, Isaac Levido, all advised Boris Johnson. Yes, as well. Exactly. David Canzini is in number 10 pursuing exactly this, you know, uh, uh, attack the left on the economy, pursue, pursue culture wars. I mean, that didn't work in Australia. No, it didn't. And Isaac Levido, who's, who ran that campaign and will be running the Tory campaign in 2023, 2024, perhaps even 2025, if the repeal of the fixed-term Parliament Act allows them to go that long, but let's not go too deep into the legislative weeds, um, will be running a campaign that looks much like that. And um, I'm not entirely sure, one, it's not convincing in the chamber, but two, whether it's convincing in the country is another question entirely. Yeah, and I'm not completely sure that, uh, that, that, that Boris Johnson's saying, oh, Labour love putting up taxes. Uh, we just got to do it very reluctantly. I'm not sure that makes any difference in the grand scheme of things. It's also interesting, if Labour can hammer the idea that Boris Johnson's only doing it to try and cover up Partygate, then they don't even get the credit. It all becomes a sort of bit of a muddy, a bit of a muddy mess. And you, you, do we get to the weekend and, and parties are still dominating over over windfall tax. Yeah, if my pen was he hovering over the number 10 grid, not that they write it in pen, um, you know, they probably write it in you know, lipstick from last <laughs> night on the evidence <laughs> of the Sue Gray report, um, I would be wondering whether it looked too transparently cynical yeah. to do it tomorrow now. Uh, well, uh, lots of you are, uh, are getting in touch. One person says the hindsight joke was great, says Matt. Uh, Glenn says the hindsight joke is already forgotten. That's hindsight <laughs> for you. Uh, we can go back to the House of Commons. This is Keir Starmer. Starmer. Mr. Speaker, I actually thought with this U-turn he might actually get his, his head out of the sand, but uh, obviously not. The reality is that every day of his dithering and his delay, £53 million has been added to Britain's household bills. Whilst he's distracted trying to save his own job, the country has been counting the cost. But complacency is nothing new for this government. Back in October, the Chancellor delivered a mini-budget that has to be re-read to be believed. With inflation already climbing, he said that he understood people were concerned about it and the government was ready to act. Since then, inflation has risen to a 40-year high, the highest rate of any G7 country. If the government was so ready to act six months ago, why hasn't it? Mr Speaker, the government has acted and my royal friend, the Chancellor, continues to act. This is the government that not only... In 
We were not only put in the living wage, Mr. Speaker. It was a Conservative institution, uh, but we've now raised it by raised it by a record amount. We've raised it by a thousand pounds, Mr. Speaker, a record amount. Uh, we've helped people, families on universal credit, have another one thousand pounds, Mr. Speaker. Thanks to the measures, the nine point one billion pounds we've already put in uh, to support people's uh, costs of heating, uh, we're abating the costs of fuel uh, for people up and down the country, and of course uh, we're going to do more. Mr. Speaker. We're going to put our arms around the people of this country, just as we did throughout the COVID pandemic. We'll co- uh, but, but, but the reason we can do that is because we took the tough decisions to drive the fastest vaccine rollout in Europe, which wouldn't have been possible if you listened to him, Mr. Speaker. And that's why we have, and let me take another statistic, youth unemployment. They used to care about it. Youth unemployment at or near a record low. Okay, let's jump in there then, Bachevagar. Uh, <laughs> if I were Boris Johnson, I wouldn't necessarily be talking about my record in the middle of the pandemic right now. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, you, you put, we put our arms around people during the pandemic. It's because you were holding their hair back. It turns <laughs> out because uh, uh, they were being sick in the cabinet office. Yeah, we were wrestling as uh, <laughs> Helen McNamara tried to break it up. Um, we uh, last week, um, Tim Shipman and I were quite, I think, quite critical of Keir Starmer. The, the, there was a sort of melange to his questions, which didn't really sort of hit home. We hit, what, the halfway point, though, that was question number three. Does he need a shift in gear? Does he need a new line of attack? Or do you think he's just going to repeat what he's just been doing? It wouldn't surprise me if he just repeated what he was saying. Um, and he has already said he's not going to make that point about the Sue Gray report, or whatever point he has to make about the Sue Gray report, until later. Um, so I, I'm not entirely sure where this line of questioning is going to end up. But it's also clear that Boris Johnson doesn't really have... A convincing answer so perhaps that's immaterial uh, if you are just joining us and wondering about the sue gray report i think it's fair to say uh there's lots of color in 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 the report uh it says that uh, uh it's found that the senior leadership in boris johnson's government must bear responsibility for the culture which led to coronavirus lockdown rules being broken said the public will be dismayed by a series of breaches of coronavirus rules uh, lots of detail emerging uh, from the report including as we were just discussing uh fighting uh, people being sick uh, people on the morning, uh, the leaving do which took place uh, on the uh, evening before Prince Philip's funeral. Uh, some people left at 1.45am, uh, 2.45, 3.11am. Uh, the last person left at 4.20. That's the one where the swing and the slide was also uh, broken. Um, uh, we will have more reaction uh, to the report, uh, including Boris Johnson's statement live at 12.30 in the House of Commons. Uh, that's coming up straight after PMQs. Let's go back to PMQs now, though. It's Keir Starmer and question four. Mr Speaker, it wasn't just the Chancellor back in September. The Prime Minister called fears about inflation unfounded. He was the last person to spot the cost of living crisis, just as he's the last person to back Labour's plan to help people through it. And Mr Speaker, it wasn't just on inflation that they got it badly wrong. In the same speech, the Chancellor boasted about growth, Prime Minister does today. Can we were going to do better than all our major competitors? It was obvious that he was being complacent. And lo and behold, Britain is set to have the lowest growth of any major country except Russia. Despite our brilliant businesses and all we have to offer, why has his government inflicted on Britain the twin-headed hydra of the highest inflation and the lowest growth? He he loves running this country down. How 
many times did he come to this place? How many times did he come to this place and say that the United Kingdom had the highest COVID death rate in Europe? How many times? He was proved completely wrong. Did he ever apologise, Mr. Speaker? Absolutely not. Did he ever take it back? Absolutely not, Mr. Speaker. Actually, because of the steps we took last year, we had the fastest growth in the G7, and we will return, and we will return to the fastest growth by 2024-2025, thanks to the decisions that this government took, Mr. Speaker. And, and they, they don't care about getting people into jobs. They don't care. Uh, we care about the working people of this country, making sure we have a high-wage, high-skill, high-employment economy, and that's what we're delivering. Well, there we are. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, he's running the country down, it, despite the fact that I thought I was about to say that Keir Starmer very carefully, Patrick McGuire, uh, praised our great businesses and our great hard-working people. He knew the trap that uh, he was in danger of walking into, but Boris Johnson accused him of anyway. Uh, but talking the country down is a harder criticism to land when people are feeling much poorer and indeed are much poorer. Just a minor point, uh, I'd like to correct Keir Starmer. There's also some fellow classically educated listeners have picked up on, uh, to say a twin-headed Hydra, um, you know, the Hydra have many more heads than that. A Greek myth. <laughs> well, I know Boris Johnson will have picked thank up on you, that. Thank you for that, that, Patrick. That's what you're here for. Two classists on the panel now, Lucy Fisher. Uh, we've us. now got... Salve, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Amiki. <laughs> oh, dear. I, I feel like I'm just a butler here to bring your, uh, <laughs> your drinks and nibbles. Uh, horny hand is sort of toil over here, Matt, but anyway. Well, yeah, I know, but some of us, you know, University of Hard Knocks, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I must admit, I did witness you say, yoo-hoo, Patrick, and ask him to bring your bottle of water over for you earlier. That's what he's here Matthew. for. What, what goes off air stays off air, Lucy Fisher. Um, uh, uh, Lucy, what are you making of BMQ so far? Uh, well, I've only just checked in, Matt, so I'm, I'm, I'm catching up with you. Well, it's what, exactly what you expect. In that case, let's go back to, I think this is question number five. Don't forget to watch along on YouTube. Uh, go to YouTube, search Times Radio. You can see the three of us surrounded by wine bottles, but not breaking a single rule, apart from the rule of radio. Uh, let's go back to the House of Commons for question five. He talks about running this country down. He is running this country down. Yeah. And it wasn't just complacency on Labour's windfall tax, which he's now backing. It wasn't just complacency on inflation, which is now through the roof. And it wasn't just complacency on growth, which is now spluttering along at the back of the pack. Because his Chancellor also claimed that people should keep more of the rewards of their efforts. And then he put their taxes up. So does the Prime Minister want to explain to hard-working people whose wages are running out sooner and sooner each month and who are facing astronomical bills and prices just how his 15 tax rises since taking office have helped them to keep more of their rewards in their pocket? Mr Speaker, first of all, what we're doing is making sure, after a huge pandemic, uh, that we are funding our vital public services, uh, which we can, uh, because of the steps that we take. What we're also doing is making sure that we put more money back into people's pockets by the, the measures that I've outlined today, uh, whether, through, whether through cutting national insurance contributions or lifting, or lifting the living wage or lifting universal credit, Mr Speaker. But all this is made possible, all this is made possible uh, because we took the, the re- responsible and sensible steps to protect our economy throughout COVID and then to come out strongly. And he's completely wrong about this country's growth performance, Mr Speaker. He runs it down. He runs it down. He was proved wrong about COVID. He's going to be proved wrong again. 
Again, uh, Punch McGuire, uh, Boris Johnson taking the bold decision to talk about decision-making during the pandemic. I really don't understand <laughs> why he hasn't adjusted. Well, it's because he has nothing else to talk about. This yeah. government is not exactly um, you know, burdened with a big catalogue of things it's delivered beyond uh, its record in the pandemic, which now will forever be tarnished in the eyes of the electorate by the memory of Partygate, you'd assume. We've had so many messages on this. Somebody texts in, the most disgusting thing in the Sue Gray report is the references to being careful not to be seen or heard because the daily briefing was going out. So in one room, we at home were receiving the message of who has died, hospital numbers, etc., while just along the, co the corridor, staff were having a booze up. It's hard to get away from that impression, isn't it, Lucy Fisher? It is, and it's just um, very depressing to see. It's the optics rather than the principle of rule-breaking that was concerning people in Downing Street. It suggests this level of cynicism. They knew what they were doing was wrong. The important thing was people didn't find out about it rather than that they didn't do it in the first place. Uh, well, we, uh, we're uh, waiting. Boris Johnson's going to do his uh, statement, his humble statement, apparently, to the House of Commons just after 12.30, after PMQs. Uh, we'll continue the PMQs unpacked now. Uh, we'll go back. It's question number six from Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer! Just delusional. Um, uh, Mr Speaker, uh, last week I raised the case of Phoenix Halliwell, whose kidney condition means he needs daily dialysis and whose energy bill has gone through the roof as a result. I'm glad that, as a result, government officials got in touch with Phoenix yesterday, and I hope that will result in more support for people who are vulnerable. But it shouldn't be left to Labour to turn up week after week to make him aware of the consequences of his dither and delay. So I want to raise another issue where the government is sleepwalking into disaster. With the summer holidays looming, there are reports that the Home Office already has a backlog of 500,000 passports to yeah. issue. Yeah. That's potentially more than half a million people worrying whether they will get away this summer. So can the Prime Minister reassure people that they won't miss out on their holidays due to the failures of his Home Office? Yeah. Prime Minister. Well, I, I, I thank you very much, but I can tell him, actually, uh, that what we're doing is massively uh, increasing the speed with which the passport office uh, deliver. And uh, to, the, to, to, the best of, to the best of my knowledge, everybody is getting their passport within four uh, to six weeks, Mr Speaker. Uh, but, that's, but, but that is because, that is because we, we, are, we are driving the leadership of this country. And uh, we are getting things done that would never have been possible if we'd listened to them. We got Brexit done, Mr. Speaker, when he voted. He voted 48 times. 48 times he voted to undo the will of the people. We got the vaccine rollout done when he would have kept in the, us in the European Medicines Agency, Mr. Speaker. We were the first European country, the first European country to help the Ukrainians resist. Anybody seriously believe for a second that they would have done it? Some are trying to boo, some are trying to cheer. The worst of it is, I can't hear the Prime Minister. Come on, Prime Minister. Let me, let me, let me say very plainly does anybody seriously think for a second that the Labour Party would have done that, Mr. Speaker? When of the shadow front bench, including the shadow foreign secretary, who is mysteriously not in his place, uh, voted recently to get rid of this country's independent nuclear deterrent. And, and he campaigned, he campaigned to put Vladimir Corbyn, I mean, sorry, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn in Downing Street, Mr Speaker. Uh, we get on, we do the difficult things. 
decisions, Mr. Speaker. Social care, social care, we're fixing it. Minister, we both can be on our feet. I'm trying to help you. You've got to help me as well. And I'm sure you've got to the end because Mr Stewart's itching to get his question. Rib Stewart. OK, we'll leave it there, I think. There's a lot of noise, uh, if not a lot of uh, new information there. Uh, that brings us to the end of PMQ's uh, Unpacked. We will... Uh, we'll bring you Boris Johnson's statement to the House of Commons just as soon as he is on his feet uh, to uh, give his reaction to the Sue Gray uh, report. Uh, Patrick Maguire, we had a greatest hits there. The European Medicines Agency, Vladimir P- Corbyn. Trident. Vladimir Corbyn was particularly risible, I thought. You know, <laughs> But it does reflect how the Conservative Party think they can win a fifth successive election, which is uh, stoking fears about the Labour Party's uh, change or lack of it. Um, pinning uh, Keir Starmer to the Corbyn mast and also banging on about the economy. But on today of all days, those lines don't seem to land or resonate with a public that is understandably going to be worried about its pay packets and outraged by what it's seen in Downing Street. Lucy, what do you make of it? Well, I'm interested to have heard Keir Starmer raise the passports backlog, half a million now outstanding, he claims. And I'm interested because I've seen a lot of research suggesting that Brits are feeling of the pinch from the cost of living crisis, increasing food bills, energy bills, of course, rocketing. And that means that people cut down on discretionary spending. They go to the hairdresser less. They buy fewer clothes. Um, they stop going out to restaurants, bars, the cinema. But one thing they do protect is their holiday. They're one or two weeks away each year, possibly because the uh, British weather can be so terrible. It's a, it's a subject dear to people's heart. But I think it feels quite a retail issue for mm. the Labour leader to have alighted on. And I remember, I think it was when Theresa May was uh, Home Secretary, there was a big problem with passports being... I remember photos are such a powerful thing. Photos of big orange crates full of applications and, and people's holidays being ruined. You're so right. Don't come between the British people and their holidays, as we saw during the during the pandemic as well. You know, when people told me they couldn't travel, yeah. uh, countries were suddenly on red lists and so on. Uh, that as a political issue is so powerful. Especially when, you know, there is no doubt that Boris Johnson will be sunning himself in a villa uh, owned by the Goldsmith family somewhere. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, possibly, please, allegedly. P- please legal. Please legal. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's all right. But, but once we do this out live on the radio, Patrick, we'll be absolutely fine. Uh, you are listening to Times Radio with me, Matt Jolly. I'm John Rowe, Patrick McGuire, Times Redbox editor, and Lucy Fisher, Times uh, Radio's chief political commentator. I mean, it's been quite a ride we've been on over the last five, what, six months. It was back in November the 30th last year that the Daily Mirror posted a story online. Boris Johnson broke COVID lockdown rules with Downing Street parties at Christmas, it said. It's set in train. Just a, what a series of revelations, claims, counterclaims, denials and yet more revelations, which at various points have threatened to cost Boris Johnson uh, his job. There was famously, of course, the Allegra Stratton video in which she joked about a cheese and wine evening. I went home. <laughs> <laughs> hold on, hold on. Um, uh, uh, this cheese and wine all right? No. It was a business no. meeting. <laughs> I'm joking. This fictional party was a business meeting. <laughs> And it was not socially distanced. Uh, That, of course, cost her her job uh, working in number 10. Uh, Others have gone. Sean Bailey, the former Tory candidate to be London mayor, resigned after photos of him emerged at a bash in CCHQ. But in response to that video, Boris Johnson said one of the things which has hung around his neck ever since. He said he was as angry as anyone else about that video and added... I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged that there was no party and that 
and that no COVID rules were broken. And that is what I have been repeatedly assured. But I have asked the Cabinet Secretary to establish all the facts and to report back as soon as possible. And, Mr Speaker, it goes without saying that if those rules were broken, then there will be disciplinary action for all those involved. Of course, the first part of that statement is what has haunted Boris Johnson ever since. The second part of the statement didn't last very long, about nine days before uh, Simon Case was taken off that uh, investigation. And Sue Gray, the veteran Whitehall... Oh, I forgot to ring it then. Sue Gray, the veteran Whitehall ethics enforcer, was put in charge of it. Uh, we've now got the report. Boris Johnson will respond to it properly. Lucy, pick through your key takeaways from it for us. Oh, it's people being sick, pre-dawn altercations, red wine stains on the wall, people being rude to cleaners and security guards, messages between senior aides talking about the comms risk of these rule-breaking events. It's all here, but it's come out in such a drip, drip fashion. I just think it is a real triumph for the Johnsonian tactic of long grassing. Always try and push things back. Call an inquiry, you know, call another inquiry. Um, allow yourself to be referred to the Privileges Committee. There's always a new um, layer that he's announcing that protects him. It's like a shield. And I think that if you saw from scratch all the uh, revelations that have come out about the rule breaking at the heart of government in Downing Street, um, if that had come out at once, I think it would have just been so damaging for him. But by now, people are just so used to it. It's just more grist to the mill and people think they know it. It's priced in. Um, our colleague uh, Henry Zeffman uh, the other day, Patrick, said that uh, um, weirdly the police investigating and then finding Boris Johnson may have saved him. Because it had, as Lucy was saying, had we had that full Sue Gray report when we just got the update, if it all come all at once without the police sticking their all in and it appears making a bit of a hash of it, uh, actually, that might have been more problematic for Boris Johnson than the situation he now finds himself in. Exactly. And what is the outstanding process, the outstanding dangerous process for Boris Johnson? It's the investigation by the Privileges Committee into whether he misled Parliament by saying there were no parties. Now, that all depends on the contested definition of the word party, doesn't it? And he has a Metropolitan Police verdict that only one of those events, and it has to be said from the pictures, um, not the most debauched of the ones described in that report, was, by legal definition, a party. So, um, you know, he can always point to uh, what the Met have said and done, indeed, as ministers have already been doing on the broadcast round this morning before the report landed, saying, look, it's fine for one of these events. The outstanding point of contention is whether I misled the House. Um, I don't think I have. And look at what the police have said. I think we also need to point out the makeup of that committee. It's a con conservative majority on it, four uh, conservative MPs uh, versus at the moment two opposition, possibly a third opposition MP to replace Chris Bryant, who's recused himself. And those four MPs, uh, currently all PPSs, they may resign their positions, but... So we should explain, they're, they're ministerial aides. They're what we might call bag carriers if we're doing them down or senior aides if we're doing them up. But they're people who are at the beginning of their parliamentary journey. They're on the up. They've made it to that first rung on up the greasy pole. They'll be hoping to go further. And there are concerns about whether they will be able to withstand the pressure that would come with finding against the Prime Minister. Oh, yeah, entirely dependent on number 10 patronage as they are. I heard Chris Bryant on Times Radio Breakfast this morning saying they're all going to resign en masse, which is a rather bold thing to say um, if, uh, if they've not given you the assurance that they, that they will.
Um, and, and, and even if they do, Patrick, I, 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 you know, I spoke to people who wonder, well, you know, they'll be in line for promotion for sure uh, if they find, <laughs> uh, if they exonerate Boris Johnson. That's the cynical take. But I suppose ultimately this, this is what comes down to the thing that is very difficult to, to, to uh, sort of uh, quantify is, uh, and it's the old Daniel Finkelstein theory that none of this matters until suddenly it all matters. And something might happen that just shifts the mood that uh, consolidates enough Conservative MPs to get that sort of critical mass, where suddenly the good thing for your career isn't sucking up to the current number 10. It's uh, acting against them because, uh, you know, there's a white knight coming over the hill who's going to offer you a better job, you know, if you, you know, uh, come out hard against the Prime Minister. And it's just that it's, it's very... You don't, you don't know when it's going to happen until it's happening. No, you're right. And we'll see if this report changes the dial. The next few hours, the next 24 hours, will be crucial to see who comes out on the airwaves, in public, in the House, against Boris Johnson, who hadn't previously already laid the boot into him. You can tell we've really made it in the uh, uh, coming down to College Green stakes because uh, uh, anyone watching us on YouTube can see that we've been joined by a man holding up a sign saying, Repent, trust in Jesus Christ. Good advice on this of all days, I uh, think. And there's another man with a, a, a poster with uh, Boris Johnson resign on it. So you know, you know Times Radio's made it. when uh, oh, oh, Jesus saves from hell. He's just uh, changed the message. He's obviously following the... Uh, Following, following, the, f- following the, the live feed. That's our reach for you. <laughs> <laughs> can, we count, can we count him for the Rajars? I think we probably can count him. Um, uh, just to take you through, let's, let's go through some of the extraordinary revelations that are in this report then. Uh, they, uh, from the back in the 15th of May 2010, we were in proper lockdown then. That photograph of people in the number 10 garden, the famous cheese and wine uh, event. We now learn that Boris Johnson brought the cheese and wine from his flat as part of an outdoor meeting, lasted for some 40 minutes apparently. Uh, uh, they all went back in by about half past seven. Uh, the following day, a number 10 special advisor emailed Martin Reynolds, uh, who was an aide to Boris Johnson, saying, thank you so much for organising these drinks and for providing the wine. Very kind thing to do. I know everyone have really appreciated it. Uh, you'll remember that back in May 2020, nobody else was having friends or colleagues around for drinks in the garden because that was against the law. And I think a key thing about this event was the appearance in those photographs of Carrie Johnson herself. Why was the Prime Minister's wife there if this was really a work meeting? Uh, there was, in fact, an email invitation Sue Gray found, uh, which, inclu- uh, which was sent to officials inviting them to a wine and cheese evening. Uh, there was then the event on May the 20th, the gathering in the garden, the big one. That was the one Boris Johnson said he wished he'd, he'd gone and told everyone to go back indoors. Uh, they um, uh, were th- th- in an e- one email talked about uh, concerns people would be coming and going just to flag the press conference and probably be finishing around that time. So hopefully, if people can be mindful of that, as speakers and cameras are leaving, not walking around waving bottles of wine, etc. So again, uh, there was that concern, uh, Patrick McGuire, that uh, you know it was how it was looked. They knew they knew that what was going on was wrong. That this idea that they were assured that it, no rules were broken, there were no parties, no rules were broken. That's just not the case, is it? Yes, especially when the Prime Minister's communications chief Lee Kane is saying explicitly, "I don't see how we can have some kind of party," which shows you how senior Number Ten aides and officials conceived of these events, which were as parties, which were. Very, very illegal at the time. Uh, there's the birthday party, the 19th of June uh, 2020 birthday party. Uh, Cleo Watson, a special advisor, 
told Sue Gray's investigation, have been asked to organise the event. There was an exchange of WhatsApp messages. PM's birthday today, we've organised some sandwiches and cake for about one o'clock. If anyone from your team would like to pop in and wish him a happy birthday. I mean, the interesting thing about that, that's the one he was fined for. It's probably the least egregious of all of them. I mean, there's a photo taken of some sandwiches, snacks, soft drink and cans of beer. But it's not the uh, karaoke machine and bottles of wine that we see later on, Lucy. No, so I think it all comes back again to this question of what was the Met Police's criteria? How were they judging this? I think this is only going to renew calls that have been taken up by Sadiq Khan, the Labour Mayor of London, for that police force to explain uh, their rationale for giving out fines for what they have and not giving out fines for some of the far more debauched events described in detail here. Yeah, we move on to the Christmas quiz on the 15th of December 2020. Another email goes around inviting people. The quiz will take place on the 15th. Uh, Tuesday the 15th, eight, uh, 6 to 8 o'clock. We need to be mindful of hands, face, space, exclamation mark, they say. Again, you know, aware of what might have been going on. Uh, the quiz began at 6 o'clock. 120 to 150 people uh, joined, some from home, others based in rooms across number 10. At least 18 members of number 10 staff joined from a large room in 70 Whitehall. Some staff drank alcohol. A number 10 official sent a message on internal number 10 systems referring to drunkenness and advising staff to leave number 10 via the back exit. The number 10 official informed the investigation team they did this in order to avoid staff being photographed by the press outside. The quiz finished at half nine. So most of those in the office in number 10 either left or returned to work after the quiz with some remaining to continue to chat and some drank alcohol. Uh, we then move on to uh, the one on the 16th of April 2021. Again, restrictions were in place. So gathering on the departure of a number 10 official. Uh, this was uh, a team meeting and leaving presentation uh, for um, uh, James Slack, who'd been uh, the, uh, the former uh, director of communications in number 10 and a private office official. Uh, that, that was, uh, there was talk of drinks being arranged, um, uh, but then there was mingling between two events, some staff moving up and down the stairs in between the basement of the press office. The two groups eventually joined together in the Down Street Garden. Shortly before 9.30, there were over 20 people in the garden with a number of bottles of alcohol. A number of individuals gathered near uh, what we now know to be Wilfrid Swing and Slide in the garden, damaging it by leaning on and playing with it. This was reported number 10 staff the next day. At this time, the custodian staff at number 10 continued to lock down the building. They noted that groups of individuals had gone into the garden. They began to break up uh, and return to the main building around 9.30. Uh, there was, I mean, it goes on and on and on, Patrick. Yeah, on and on and on. And this is the, it's the problem with the sort of uh, the, fi the Philip Larkin culture of, uh, of life at the heart of government, you know, working all day and getting half drunk at night. I like the uh, thick of it reference more. The the idea of being rude to the cleaners mimics the yeah, exactly. an episode called The Rise of the Nutters where they stay in Downing Street all night, leave sandwich wrappers lying around and end up shouting at the cleaners. There is literally nothing uh, that has been in an episode of The Thick of It which someone in Whitehall doesn't take as an instruction video. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from.